And I'll be, I will be moderating, and uh, this will be uploaded to uh, uh, podcast and also to the face, church Facebook page. Uh, if you do have any questions about anything that we're discussing tonight, please just raise your hand, and we'll get to you as soon as we can. And it will be civil. I know Nick is sitting on the far side, <laughs> out of arm's reach. Uh, so the first question is... Did the Son of God deny his own omniscience? And there's some uh, scripture here from Matthew 24, 36 and Mark 13, 32, uh, where he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And then Matthew 26, 39, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So the question again is, did the Son of God deny his own <clears throat> omniscience? No. Um, very simply put, no, because uh, when he told, when Peter, when he asked him, said, do you love me? <clears throat> he said, then feed my sheep, right? And then he asked him a couple more times, do you love me? He said, then feed my lambs. And then he said, Lord, you know all things, right? So I think in the incarnation, obviously in Philippians, I think it's 2, 5, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider robbery to make himself equal to God, but came in the form of a bondservant. So he humbled himself, right? Even unto the death, the death of the cross. So there's the one part that um, I remember in John, um, when it says no one has come down from heaven except the Son of God, um, the Son of Man who is in heaven. So in the incarnation, obviously, he willingly set aside, you know, or took on what God obviously does not have, right? Which is, you know, God is limitless, right? But in human flesh, the veil of Christ, you know, in the hypostatic union, we would say there were some things that, when he, when he took on, there were some things that obviously, as a human being, there would be, um, try not to define this wrong, and <laughs> be a modalist, right? But um, Paul, or Nick so, probably helped me better than that, but I know that he knows all things, so there's, there's no way that he denied his omniscience. So are you saying then, because are you saying that when Jesus professed to not know the day and the hour when he returned, that his, that which constitutes his divine nature did, and in fact at that moment, did know? Yes. Yes, because I think as, you know, the scripture's not in contradiction when Peter tells him, because obviously he's, he's obviously recognizing him as, you know, the almighty God, the king of the universe, when he says, you know all things. And when we think of, you know, the incarnation, we also think that when he came down from heaven, that, that mysterious verse in John, when it says, except for the son of man who is in heaven. So, like we often say, God died on the cross, but... God cannot die. That's why he arose from the dead, right? The grave could not hold him because he's God. So he did not deny his Yeah. So, so when we think of Jesus, we have to understand in the hypostatic union that he has a true human nature and a true divine nature. And some, But sometimes when scripture speaks, we have to take note of what nature is, I guess you would say maybe responsible in that moment. Yet at the same time, you affirm that he's one person. 
And so the question is specific. Did the Son of God deny his own omniscience? Well, Jesus is the Son of God, and at that moment he did say he didn't know that. But as John was saying, his divine nature, his divine nature, he was fully aware of the reality of, of all things. There's a few, there's more than, you know, just that one verse where he's engaged with Peter, where Jesus knows all things, where he talks about seeing um, Philip under the tree, and that, you know, that caused Philip to know that he was God, and there's, he knows the hearts and thoughts and intentions of man. We see that in multiple situations when he's dealing with Pharisees and opponents to him being the promised Messiah. And so what we have to do in order to prevent heretical comments is affirm that Jesus is one person. He is the God-man. But sometimes in Scripture, there are elements in which we see him operating according to a specific nature with which he has. It's not to neglect or say that the other nature is somehow mitigated in that point. I mean, when Jesus tells the, the storm to cease and the disciples at that point are terrified when they're with him, we would not attribute that to his human nature, right? Because right. when we have a human nature, we can't tell the storm to just Amen. stop. So you can't, it just won't listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting if you look back at some of the earliest apologetic battles that the church had to fight. Very early on, it was about the understanding of the triune nature of God. This is a tricky thing for the human mind to grasp. But when we talk about things like the hypostatic union, it's specifically called the hypostatic union, not the hypostatic conversion. Jesus doesn't lay aside his divinity and stop being divine in order to now transition into becoming a human being. He joins to his divine nature a human nature. And those two things are not mixed. They're not mingled. They are unique, but they are both present in the one person of Jesus Christ. And these are, these are high and lofty things to think about. Um, and we, we don't want to minimize the human nature of Christ. Christ did have to sleep. He did have to eat. He did you know, suffer from the, the difficulties of this world as you and I do. Uh, and there were things that he was not aware of in his human nature that he, he just had to rely on the Father for, as you and I have to often rely on the Father. But uh, in those moments, the divine nature that has always been his uh, was not absent. It just wasn't at the forefront. And so we don't speak of him as knowing in those moments, even though his divine nature is fully aware always. How do you spell hypostatic? H Hypo. Static. H-Y-P-O. H-Y-P-O. S-T-A-T-I-C. Hypo. 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 Hypo when it says that he emptied himself, right? That's the part. And uh, actually in, the, in the, uh, New King James, it said he made himself no reputation. I mean, so, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to follow that whole debate in this sense. Are, are people saying that... It's the kenosis. So that, that's really not... I don't think that I would necessarily bring that up because what, what Paul's establishing to the church at Philippi at that point is that in the incarnation, Jesus humbled himself. Because he took on a human nature, and humanity, that which constitutes humanity, body and soul, is submissive unto uh, the divine nature, divinity, who God is. And so, to like your point, that there's a big debate right now about it, um, when we 
consider that text, what we're thinking, what we're understanding is that Jesus became submission, even to the uh, sub, submission, submissive to the Father, even all the way to the point of death, yeah. is what it says in there in Philippians. So the debate right now is, was, is Jesus as the Son submissive eternally? And we would reject that as being unorthodox because Philippi, the Philippians passage and the kenosis, his emptying of himself, is that he became submissive at that point. Because Father, Son, and Spirit share one will. So when Jesus in Matthew 24 says, no one knows but the Father, he's a true human being. And he does, he's at the same time as being truly divine. And so he's speaking from that human nature in that moment for the purposes of accomplishing God's glory. Because at that time, it wasn't to be revealed to the disciples you know, when it is that that's going to happen. And we still, nobody still today can predict an exact day. And I know man can, yeah. but certainly Jesus knows. So I don't know if you guys have the, like, who asked the question. I don't know if you guys understand, but I wonder what is the I intent of one. the question, you know, to ask that question? What is the intent? Like, you know, because I, I know that people have a hard time because it says, well, no one knows but the Father alone, right? It has that word alone there. So I think that's, that's where the argument has become. Well, I would go back to the passage in John when he said no one has ascended into heaven except for the Son of Man who came, who came down from heaven, right? So the mystery of Christ is what, we speak, what we're speaking to you of right now. I mean, we can only do as best as what God has given us in his revelation. We can't go or think beyond what is written because we don't know more than, you know, the, than God has revealed to us about the nature of God, you know, when it comes to the hypostatic union. So, you know, except the Father, I think, would qualify in that moment of Christ, you know, not laying aside his divinity, but also having taken on flesh, right, in union, in union with, hypostatically with him being God. So at that moment, like Nick was saying a minute ago, <clears throat> He had to eat, you know, he had to sleep, so. It's humanity. Yeah, it's humanity, so you would think if, you know, and I'm speculating, but if you asked him, you know, on a one o'clock afternoon, you know, what so-and-so was doing on the other part of the world, you know, would, we, would he have to rely on the Father for that? Probably, you know, but like Paul was saying, does he know all things, I think, as the resurrected Christ? I believe he does. Um, so, it's mysterious to us. We only know what's in the pages of scripture, but as far as the ESS stuff, yeah, that that just doesn't make sense at all, you know, because Christ wasn't incarnate in eternity when, you know, the covenant of redemption was being made, right? We don't we don't see any submission made of the Son to the Father before the incarnation. So that just seems speculatory to me at best. One of the things we said last week is when we were talking about in the section about um, God's, uh, the, the, notion, the concept of free will, that one of the things I, wanted, I tried to bring up at one point was that we, we tend to forget what's going on in this world right now, that, that we are living within God's world, and he has a plan, a purpose uh, to redeem people for his son, and we're in the middle of this story. And so if we think of like what's happening in Matthew 24, <clears throat> He's talking about the destruction of the temple, 70 AD. It comes up to, you know, they're speaking of tribulation. And there's, we're opening a whole box now. We can talk about different, you know, 
transi- uh, hermeneutical principles on what exactly is being specified. But when it comes down to this part of where, G- where Jesus gives that famous line, it's only the Father in heaven knows, he then goes on to list a number of things, like about, about Noah, that it will be like how it was in the days of Noah. And then he gives you know, a couple pa- uh, parables, essentially. And the point of it all is to say, look, keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your eyes on the Lord. These things are going to happen. It's going to happen, but we shouldn't be overly concerned with when exactly it's going to happen. We don't want to relax. We don't want. Uh, they, that's the same application that's made in, in the church to Thessalonica, right? Where there were people who either thought the Lord had come, or he was or he already come, or he was about to come, and so they stopped working. and And Jesus even tells a parable about the the ten virgins, where five had their oil, five let it go out. These things are all along the same vein of communicating to us what we need to do in this current age that we're living in, and that is seek to glorify the Lord, not get overly concerned in details that we don't actually need to know. Amen. Anybody else have any questions? Let's go. Okay. Uh, This one is a uh, kind of a hot button topic. It can be very emotional. Uh, do any aborted, miscarried, stillborn babies go to heaven by God's election without having responded by God-given faith and repentance to the gospel? And the scripture they use here is 2 Samuel 12, 23. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Well, that's the only way anybody goes to heaven is by election, right? So... I don't know if we need to say more than that at that point. Can an infant be elect? Certainly. Why not? Right? Um, I think it's a more difficult question for somebody who rejects the doctrine of election, right? Sure. Because if you don't believe that God elects those who are, you know, blackened apart and can only sin, if we don't believe that God is the one who initiates that transition, then it really is in our hands. And, and how can an unborn baby take the initiative at all? to pursue after the Lord God and to put their faith in Him. But if our salvation begins with the decree of God, the working of the Holy Spirit that quickens us and makes us alive in spirit when formerly we were dead in spirit, that He is the one that, that makes that happen. And so He can do that in, the, in the, the life of an unborn child. We don't have any way to determine whether He does or not. This passage seems to indicate that David believes that he is going to go to where his son was. And if David is a man of faith and trusts in Yahweh and believes he's going to have some kind of a union with Yahweh after life, um, then he's obviously believing that his son will be there as well. Uh, we don't really have a basis to know whether a child is elect or not, but I think that we can believe that God in his mercy could elect a child and could allow them to be in heaven. Um, but this is one of those topics where we really want to know for sure, and we just really cannot. It's, it's very difficult because as much as it would ease our pain, to have some hope that this child that we lost will get to experience a fellowship with them for eternity in heaven. We can't say for certainty that we can or cannot. These things are in the hands of the Lord. And it reminds us that our joy needs to be in things beyond even these significant and important relationships to us, like the relationships that we have to our children or to our parents or to those who we really care about. Our, our joy has to be founded in Christ because if our joy is founded on other things then our foundation is like shifting sand and can be, you know, the, you know, the life that we're building can be toppled when we put our hopes and our trust in the things of the world, even good things. Let our faith be in him first and only. Yeah, I would agree. I think there's, 
there's a limit on what we can understand. Coming from a Roman Catholic background, I'm always very careful in how I deal with something like this because I was brought up in a church that, you know, was obviously apostate and taught that through infant baptism, God removed original sin. And so as a baby, that's why you go to heaven, right? And so that's very different from the answer. Nick and Paul just gave, obviously, if you're elect, because we see a situation where John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. You know, he leaped, you know, in the womb. So we know that, obviously, that's showing right there that God can regenerate somebody. And no one is regenerated apart from God's election, right? So we see that, um, but it's more descriptive, right? It's not saying anything that we can know definitively. We know there's just so many mysteries surrounding, you know, we know that when someone, life begins a conception, right? So it's just so many different things about when we read, you know, about the way we see the gospel, about calling and believing in those things. So there's a lot of, like Nick was saying, there's, we don't want to get pent up in emotion because even on the David passage in Samuel, it's saying a lot of commentators say he's talking about the grave that he's going to, not paradise or whatever. So we got to be careful not to be dogmatic on those things. And the Lord will speak to us on these matters clearly when we're with him, you know, one day. So our faith ultimately has to be in God. The only issue with David saying if it's the grave, he seems pretty joyful at the moment. So, so but just back to the question, there's a second part to this question. So maybe we'll say most of for that. The question asked to aborted, miscarried, or what's the other one? Stillborn. Stillborn babies go to heaven by God's election. Yes, right? That's the only, only way. If there's no, at that, you know, they'll be made willing then to profess faith. I mean, if we understand that, and this is what I think the second question goes to, is that a baby can't, we would say typically a baby can't, you know, confess that Jesus is Lord. Well, we would understand that when they died and they went before the Lord, if they are elect, they would be able at that moment to confess Christ as Lord. Just like, you know, because the only, the only way that any of us confess Christ as Lord is by the Spirit. And so the same thing would be to these babies by election. If the question didn't say that, then we would, if the question didn't have that defining point about going by election, then we would have to simply say that we don't know, right? Because we're, we're not trying to say, do all babies who die of these three reasons go to heaven? There are some believers who believe that. And I think they would appeal to that second Samuel verse, usually for that. Um, that would really only be good for a believer to appeal to that verse, not for an unbeliever, certainly I would think. But since the question asked is by election, our answer would have to be yes. The London Confession, chapter 10, says elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ the Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases, so also are all elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. So people with disabilities and things like that, and young, young children even as well. But the, the, it's the same way anybody's saved. The elect are regenerated and saved through Christ by the Spirit. Which then at that point, everything we do is responsive. Belief, faith, trust. Now I would add, the person Romans 3.20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. I mean, uh, if you had a little five-year-old, 
and you pray the prayer and you receive Christ, how much is he conscious of his sin? So <coughs> it's like they almost get to a, an age where they are no more about, they have more of a conscience about things and about the world or about what's inside of them and they know what's wrong and right so that they, uh, they can confess their sin. I would be responsible for your sin if you're not aware of it. I would be really so cautious. Be like a person, there. like a, uh, a missionary, and let's say these people never heard about Christ, and they died, and they never heard about Christ. Uh, if they're yeah. not conscious of their sin, then I would be very cautious. There, they go to hell, right? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, well, I think that's what we're talking about, right? Like, if they're, if they're not, not conscious of their sin, do they get a free ticket to heaven? Now, the, the, the very fact that they've broken the law of God, whether they know about it or not, makes them guilty of that sin. And they're already guilty right? in Adam, right? I mean, yeah. there's no need for them to be knowledge. The point of Romans 3, if we think of Romans, Nick's going to be preaching on this, so this will be good. When we get to Romans 3, which will probably be like a year from now. Um, the, uh, Romans 3, the Bible, Romans breaks down to guilt, grace, gratitude. The opening chapters are about the Apostle Paul establishing mankind's guilt. So in Romans 3, when Paul's saying that, the point is, is that all people are dead in in the fall through Adam. And so that's why nobody can be righteous and earn salvation because we were born dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. Jesus didn't have that. And so he did, you know, he is declared righteous by his works. And that's why, you know, if we think back to the statement that John said about Roman Catholicism and how they would believe that baptism washes you from your sins, it reminds me of something that sometimes evangelicals say, well, they'll they'll say... um, justification is just as if you've never sinned. Maybe you've heard that before. I don't really love that statement because the problem is, is that that's like what the Roman Catholic baptism is, takes away sin. But that's not what we need to go to heaven. What we need to go to heaven is a is righteousness. It's yes. perfect, perpetual, and permanent righteousness. And that was given to us by the imputation of Christ's righteous life to us through faith. And so the Romans 3 passage, it, that what that's saying is that is that we need a mediator. We need an intercessor. We need someone to save us. We need, we need a new Adam who represents us so that we can be right with God because at this point, what the law does, if you, if you keep on going on, Romans 7, which may be the, um, where the Apostle Paul talks about, I, would have, I didn't know sin until... Um, law so you shall not covet. Law so you shall not covet. So possibly the rich young ruler is maybe the Apostle Paul, right? Because he gets into that discussion where, you know, where he's coveting and, and Christ sends him away. That's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a guess. And maybe this person, we don't really know. But when the law came alive and he died at that point. And so the law shows us our sin. It shows us that we are in need of a savior. Uh, it's not that we can obtain uh, eternal life by our good works because we simply can't because we're already born dead in our trespasses and sins. We need a righteous substitute in our place. Yeah, and I would cautious you, Dale, just like what Pastor Paul and what Nick and what are talking about, about elect infants is definitely not the age of accountability. Yeah. You know, you have to be very careful because when you say sinners aren't accountable until they reach a certain age, you're essentially saying they aren't sinners until they're aware of their sin. And that is heterodoxy at best. Well, they're not responsible for the sin if they don't know about it. Well, they yeah, have to be, though, because yeah, in Romans, or in Romans chapter 1, it says, verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them. He's speaking about everyone in the world. He's not speaking about just the Jews. He's speaking about all the people who live, right? I'm talking about people, not like us. I'm talking about little 
kids. You're about kids, yeah. Or, because that was the question about, will little kids, well, uh, you know, like that go to heaven? If they're little babies, you know, uh, are they conscious of their sins? And are they responsible for it? Well, the so Bible says that the wicked. That's the second about, question. Is yeah, why, why don't we go ahead and move on? Because the next question, well, the next question actually deals with that. Well, uh, let me just say this one verse. Psalm 58.3 says that the wicked are estranged from the womb. As soon as they are born, they go forth speaking lies. So there's no... I was formed in iniquity, right? Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. David said I was shaped in iniquity. So it's not about the consciousness, about when we are aware. Inability and culpability, you know, they don't... One doesn't cancel out the other. It's like just because you're unable to understand or someone to articulate to you that you are guilty of sin doesn't remove your sin. You're still a sinner. And you need God to sovereignly remove that by a divine act. So if the baby hasn't repented, they go to hell. Well, that's why I was very cautious to say that I think that we are speculating off of what we see in Scripture, but there's a mystery that surrounds this matter. We can't be dogmatic and say we know this because Scripture clearly says this. So we definitely don't want to make one a bridge into the other where we say, well, because we believe elect infants go to heaven, then... There's an age that they're actually accountable. That's two separate discussions. And one can be true, the first one. The second one is absolutely not true. It has nothing to do with someone's age. I mean, people falsely, at my old church, they used to say, well, so-and-so died in a car accident when they were five years old. And, you know, they weren't accountable for their sin yet because they hadn't reached that age. And I'd always press the pastor and I'd say, well, then what age are they? And then he actually came up with a number. And he said, well probably 12 or 13 years old. And I'd say, well, where does the Bible say that? So, you know, we have to add to the word of God to come up with these conclusions, which I would say makes them false and heterodoxy. Yes. Let me just add, because I know you say that the next question is dealing with that. But I think also Sorry, when we have to kind of be careful with, uh, with uh, the whole thing with all babies go to heaven, right? I know yeah. that uh, obviously they're unbelievers, so they're going to use any means they can, but you know, a lot of unbelievers try to use that because they've heard that through the church, um, even with the age of accountability and all babies go to heaven. Like that, that like gives abortion an okay. It's like we're Absolutely. we're uh, they weaponize it. Yeah. yeah, they weaponize it, and now, they say, hey, now look, doing that baby a favor yeah. by sparing them the sin of the world and having to live in a fallen creation by sending them all to heaven before they even have to taste of that wickedness. And so, I think it's part of the reason why God is wise in what he doesn't reveal to us, because the wickedness of our heart would take that kind of a passage or promise and would turn it around and use it exactly how we shouldn't use it. And these discussions are really good, Dale, because we're talking about things that do have very serious mission implications. You know, if, let's, let's, let's say somebody presses this into the, to the adult and says the adult you know, doesn't know about their sin because they, they've not been exposed to the mission. Well, then a missionary is like condemning them to death by going into the jungles and teaching the gospel to them. They've never heard about this Jesus, never heard about the word of God. They, they don't even know that there is a God, but we can't look at it that way. We yes. have to look at it the way that God has taught us to look at it in that everyone is broken and sinful and needs the gospel. Even our littlest children need to hear of the gospel because we don't know when the Lord is going to work in their lives, if ever. So our job and our responsibility is to simply love them with, with the message of God's graceful willingness to save and pray that God gives them the faith to, to accept it. We all do it, too. Our, we don't treat our children. We treat our children according to their age level, and we hand out punishments according to their age level. And, of course, at certain ages, you don't blame 
hardly at all because they're just babies. There's so difference between foolishness that, and sin, right? God has intuitively given us that right to do that, then I can't see him not doing that either. Mm-hmm. Thank God we're the creatures and he's the creator, right? I mean, we don't, we don't act as if God is fashioned after us. It's us who are fashioned after him, I think. And we don't always reflect as image bearers accurately who God is. But it's one of the reasons why I'm really careful when it comes to this topic. Because like Stephen said apologetically, when you get out there and you run into people who say, well, you might as well just abort all your babies. and You know, these are people who probably sat under some type of teaching in church who are unbelieving people who've weaponized a poorly articulated or a false doctrine and turned it into something as a spear and use it to attack believers. But there's a fundamental difference between saying elect infants go to heaven and all infants go to heaven, which would lead to an age of accountability. And even with elect infants going to heaven, like Paul was saying that, you know, we believe this because God is able to do that, but we don't see an example of it in scripture, right? So other than the David passage, that's the closest we can see. So we do have to be very careful because we, when we do this, we're trying to delicately harmonize whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How shall they call on him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher, right? How shall they go unless they're sent? So we're trying to be very, we're trying to help handle this the best way we can with the revelation that we have. And so we're saying this to you and admonishing you to say, be careful how you handle that. Because when you go out into the world where there's wolves, you're going to have people attack on whatever weaknesses there are on that doctrine and really try to expose you. So you got to be really careful. Let's, let's the read the next question because uh, there's still like three other questions to do. And so let's continue to the, to the second part of this so we have enough time to get to all these. Does inherited sin nature count the same as being guilty of sin? A one-day-old newborn has sin nature but does not seem yet to have the ability to sin. If baby dies right after being born, do we apply the same reasoning as aborted babies? Mm. And I, I wanted to add, um, since we're, we have inherited Adam's sin nature, that sin nature is also in a child, and a baby. So how would they be able to even get into heaven unless God had elected them previously, right. correct? Correct. I, I'm not a huge fan even of the term sin nature. I prefer, because we have a human nature that's impacted by sin. So I, I prefer speaking of it as our nature has fallen in Adam and it's renewed in Christ. Um, so what it comes down to is who's responsible for someone going to heaven? Is it ourselves? Is it because I, is it because I repented? Is it because I exercised faith? Or is it because God regenerated me and then I repented and I exer- exercised faith? And so when we think of it in those two categories, then that's why I would say election is the only means by which anyone goes to heaven is because if we're elected by God and Christ for the foundation of the world, then at some point the Holy Spirit applies saving faith to us. We are regenerated, we're made alive in Christ, we're born again, and from there we are repentant, we have faith, we are in Christ and trusting in Christ. But before that, we're not experientially and there are some people that never will there are some people that are that are wicked and are called vessels of destruction even and so just as well as you know it's more complex because an Adam when Adam died we all died according to Romans 5 um, that's enough 
to, because Adam is your representative, that's enough to send you into hell. The reality is, is that as soon as you are a person, a, a, as soon as you become alive, you are then sinning in rebellion to God yourself as well. And so you're adding to that. Um, and so, yes, so you, a person who is not saved, who has a nature that is fallen, is guilty of sin, even if they're not aware of the fact that they're sinning. And the reality is, is, Again, before I was, before any of us were Christian, we weren't aware of all the ways in which we sin. Even now, we're probably not aware of all the ways in which we still sin. Amen. We're more awakened to it now, and we are seeking to put those things to death. Mm-hmm. But the culpability ultimately is on God. Those who were chosen in Christ for the foundation of the world will be saved. Those who are not will not be. Amen. And the, going back to the Psalm eight. 58 passage when the wicked are estranged we're talking about infants God is giving them the adjective they're wicked they're estranged from the womb they go forth speaking lies I mean we don't see that a lot of people say oh innocent little baby well, that baby's very trained and skilled in deception right and so when we use the whole term viper in a diaper you know it's real I mean it's not like they have to learn iniquity, wickedness from their parents. They've already inherited it from Adam. So we have to be very careful and handle this properly. You know, lawlessness, you know, there's a passage in Romans where uh, a friend of mine tried to use it to say, well, you know, there's no, this is why babies go to heaven. I think where it says, uh, sin is not imputed when there is no law. And that's simply talking about Christ, you know, redeeming us from the curse of the law, right? But they were saying, well, you know, see, there's no law, similar to what you were saying a minute ago, Dale. Well, they don't understand this, so there's no way God is going to impute this on them because of their ability to comprehend it. No, you need God to take away our lawlessness, you know. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world because we're already born in sin. So we got to handle this properly. Yeah, and you go back to that verse that was mentioned earlier in regards to the omniscience of Christ when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, if there's any other way, take this cup from my lips. There is no other way. You can't conceive of a way where we just see somebody go to heaven, not by faith in Christ, by regeneration and election, but by ignorance or by, you know, they were so young, they're not culpable of their sins. Like There's only one way, and it's through Christ. So, uh, so if the question really digs down to, is there a difference between responsibility for sin in that I don't feel comfortable saying that I'm a sinner because of Adam's sin, well, that's something we're going to have to come to terms with. Like we're, our American sensibilities often make us think that you can only judge me if I did it myself, but we were represented by Adam. We are descendants of Adam and there's a sin that comes from him and and lands upon us. It's not just what we've done. It's, it's who we are in Adam. And it's not until we, we, by faith, enter into Christ that we are now under a different federal head whose righteousness now counts corporately for us. So, and we like being it's a two-edged sword. <laughs> exactly. like it's being a two-edged sword, right? We don't like the idea of Adam representing us because he messed up. But we love the fact that Christ represents us and his yeah. righteousness now shines on our behalf. So we can, we can grasp it and embrace it on the righteousness side. But we also have to be level-minded and accept the realities that the scripture paints for us 
that on the negative side is true as well, that Adam's sin counts for us. I am a sinner, whether or not I've ever sinned before. And I assure you, I have sinned. <laughs> Shy Lynn explains it like if, they're, if you're playing on a basketball team and you guys are over the foul limit and someone fouls, the whole team gets penalized, right? You think of it like that with Adam. One of the, the, the key to ever understand this is federal or covenant theology. You either are in Adam or you're in Christ. Amen. So think of what we're saying here. If you are a baby, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? You can't, if you're, if you're a baby, then do you go from being, and then there's at some age, later on down the road, then you're aware, then you go to Adam. Does that mean you are in Christ? And then you go to in Adam? You fall out of covenant with Christ and then somehow go into covenant under Adam and then with the potential to go back to Christ? Based on what? Based on what you do? That, that, that is contrary to the testimony of Scripture. That's it makes it a work the, salvation. It makes it a work salvation. So we, the, the, what the Bible tells us is that we were all represented by Adam. We were all... Destitute, Adam and his fall, all his um, uh, posterity died with him. And then by grace, we are saved through faith when God regenerates us. And we are placed into Christ. We have union with Christ. But before that, you know, even that's why Paul's point he, in Ephesians 1, he goes up on this whole like super long sentence about God's glory and saving and election. And then two, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you know, under the wrath of God, truly until it is that we were united to Christ. Because there's, we can only be under one covenant head. And if we're saying that an infant starts out in Christ, but then could somehow go to in Adam, then what is, then Christ could lose people? Christ, then, we're, then we're saying people could lose their salvation? That's a really difficult position to establish, I would think, from the word, at least. Amen. Fred? Yeah, you know, well, I mean, that's right, a really good discussion, but I, I think for the... Uh, you know, the baby, I mean, obviously they're not responsible for their sin, but I think maybe they have a special place because ultimately it's up to the parents because when he had the little children, he said, you know, whoever causes these to stumble, it would be better than the millstone in the lake and all that. But the thing is, is uh, so ultimately that goes also for the, uh, the guardians of the child too. You gotta be careful though, the premise you came with when you said the baby's not responsible, we're actually saying something different. They absolutely are responsible. You know, see, that's what we're, we're, we're saying. The scriptures don't teach that. The scriptures teach that if you read the plain reading of Psalm 58, it says the wicked are estranged from the womb. As soon as they go forth, they go forth speaking lies. Well, we know what are lying lips. They're an abomination to the Lord. So it's not like we can say, well, these things, God, this, this goes back to that whole doctrine of, God loves the sin. God loves the sinner and hates the sin. Well, that's a lie. That's not true, because lying lips are on that sinner. That's a tongue that physically is a part of that sinner, right? So, yeah, it's not. They're not. These aren't divorced. Like it's not like we say this is something that's separate from the sinner, right? So, that doctrine has been taught to us by age of accountability, free will. God loves everyone and wants everyone to repent synergistic type thinking where when we come out with premises like that, then like Brother Stephen said, then what stops us from defending, or what's going to help us defend when the atheist says, well then abort all your babies then, that's the most loving thing you can do because they're not responsible for their sin yet so just go ahead and agree with us, murder them and they'll go to be with God. You have no defense from that when you come out with a faulty premise like that because the Bible simply does not teach that. And it is wrong for a parent to cause a little one to stumble simply because sin is an offense to the Lord God. So that, that in and of itself 
is, is ugly. When you cause anyone to stumble, whether it's a little one or an old one, you know, it's, it's wretched. And so we've we got to think of, of sin for what it is. It is an offense to the living God who deserves honor and glory above all things. So any, anyone who causes another to stumble has is, is, is made a, a, a horrendous mistake and, and is guilty and should be punished for that. So it's not saying there that the fate of the little child is in the hands of the parents, and if they raise them wrong, then that child is damned earlier. Because that just ignores the fact that we're born in Adam and have the stain of sin upon us even before we take our first breath. And unto the glory of God, I am responsible for my sin from birth, and I am always not responsible for my salvation. Because salvation is by grace alone. Amen. I just want to say, I know that it's been a while since we kind of, we went through all the catechisms, but if we would go back, like I know that you had the catechisms books in the back and those things. So, I mean, even if we look at the one that we have, I think they put sections, and it's a section called Sin. And if we look at those catechism questions from 19 to about 22, they deal with this issue, you know, very much. They do. You know, we have more questions. Yeah, those sermons are all on the website, so if you want to go back and get a refresher, it's a good, good way to see how the scripture founds that thinking. It's not just philosophical or theological jargon. It's, you know, it's, these are things that are birthed from our understanding of the word. Yeah, I mean, when we're sinners, original in Adam, an actual, you know, when we break the law of God. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Hey, I just wanted to read Christopher, it. Christopher, go ahead. You had a question? Uh, I just wanted to add something to, to back up what you guys were saying. I appreciate you, John, for bringing up the passage from Psalm a couple times just to clear that up. That always is a good thing to have with that. I also wanted to bring up Romans uh, chapter 7 this time. And um, I was reading in the first half of chapter 7. So I think I'm going to read verse 1 through 6. And I'll try to like break that down, try to simplify it. Um, so in verse, verse 1 of chapter 7. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he lives. So right from the get-go, it's like the law has dominion over every human being from conception, since it is fact that, you know, human beings are human beings from conception. They have their life from conception. Verse 2, for the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another, <coughs> she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that ye should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should be, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So basically, I think how all that really uh, is relevant what we're talking about is basically again how in the very first verse it kind of like solidifies how just from conception 
uh, human beings are bound by the law, and then you know once Christ uh, calls us, we are loose from that law, and um, and that pretty much like the whole loosing on like in verse six, that's where it talks about yeah. this the whole being delivered. And how in verse seven it talks about how uh, <coughs> the motions of sin and how we work iniquity and how we bring forth the fruit of death. I, I think those those uh, verses right there kind of they do. Thank, yeah, thanks, brother. Yeah, it's like thinking you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. There is no slave to nothing right. before that, right? So that's a good yeah. point. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, that was uh, the yeah. layer half of the chapter. Yep. Well, the verse you said flowed right into what Paul said earlier that, you know, about he wouldn't have known the law unless you shall not cut it, right? right. So it all goes together. Yep. Thanks, Chris. All right. It's good. Moving along uh, in the essence, for the essence of time. Next question, not such a hot button topic. Is there a difference between one's soul and spirit? <laughs> That's actually a hot button topic between us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe not anybody else in this room has thought too long and hard about whether there's a difference between soul and spirit. And this, this kind of run, probably arises out of uh, just a, a friendly debate we have had about the nature who of Who gave man. this question? Is this you? No. Okay. <laughs> we still don't know who pulled the trigger on this one. We, we, were, we were thinking it was one of us, Wait. and then he planted that question in there so we could just have this fight in a public forum it was instead of our text message threads all the time. <laughs> so the, the question there is, what, how do you break down the constitution of what is a person? What is a human being? And obviously I think everybody agrees that human beings do have a physical aspect to them, a material part, sometimes called the flesh, uh, sometimes called the body. Um, but then what is the other part, uh, the part that is not tangible? And so there's been long-running debates, although um, there, I, the majority of theologians today would say that we are a two-part uh, creature, that we have a, a body and then we have a soul or spirit. And those two terms are believed to be interchangeable and uh, essentially the same. Uh, whereas there are a couple of scriptures where the words soul and spirit are mentioned in the same breath as being divisible or two different things. Um, when I do the benediction at the, the end of each sermon, um, the emphasis there, the reason why I chose that as the benediction for this last series is because it's about sanctification and about how he who um, called us is able to fulfill our sanctification. But it does mention in that verse um, that, that Christ would, uh, may he... Uh, sanctify our body, our soul, and our spirit. So it seems to be like a three-part um, formulation for what a person is. Uh, but there are other places in the scripture where Jesus says, for instance, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So is a four-part division? Is, are there four parts to human beings? You read that, and then you realize it's a quotation of Deuteronomy, which I believe is heart, soul, and strength, right? I think mind is left out of that formulation. So there are a lot of scriptures that speak of soul and spirit in almost an interchangeable way. And so it makes it kind of difficult to understand. So Paul, you want to chime in? And <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm, a, I'm the dichotomist. So, the, so dichotomy versus trichotomy, those are the fancy theological words. And so I would, yeah, my conviction, I guess, is that man is body and soul or spirit. By that we really mean, I think Nick might have said this too, it's either there's, there's material and there's immaterial. And so 
I, I and um, which I think this is, and it's not just even just a modern position. I think it's the more historic position even is to think of it in these categories, but not that that's a necessarily a right reason to believe it. But um, when we think of the will, emotions, um, heart, you know, mind strength, those are all immaterial. You, you can't, I can't grab it. Um, it's your part of an immaterial aspect of the human nature. And so that's why most, you know, reformed, not all, and James Montgomery Boyce is, I believe, a trichotomist, uh, pink, A.W. Pink um, also would, I think, advocate for that position. Uh, this is one of those areas which I think, you know, is a tertiary area where believers can have a different opinion on it and discuss it and be in still sweet fellowship and just, you know, good reason to rib each other every now and then. Mostly sweet. When we can, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, well, you know, that's, you bring take that up with Ken, Riddlebarger. Um, but... Generally speaking, when the Bible uses soul and spirit, they're generally interchangeable. There's two verses, Hebrews 4.12 and then 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where they're used together. And so really, when we think, and if we think of soul and spirit, there are different words in Greek and Hebrew. But the etymology of a word doesn't derive meaning more than context does. Yeah. So when we, when we interpret scripture, what's the most important Thing in, in interpretation is the context of itself and because that's the case the vast majority of time when scripture uses soul and spirit they're interchangeable terms there's a, there's like nick was saying there's two verses and even if we say in those in those moments they're meaning different things i think that it would be best to say that they're both immaterial things and then still then in the constitution of being dichotomous <coughs> if that makes sense and as a trichotomist i would just say that you know, I agree. I think, like Nick was saying, it is difficult because when you parse out and you're trying to exegetically understand these things, there's there's going to be a time when, like, when the Lord says, how, you know, a man can't gain the whole world, you know, if he loses his own soul, right? So, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So we would, you know, as a trichotomist, we would understand the soul to be that part, like what Paul was saying about the part that expresses emotions, the understanding, right, the affections of a human being. But when I look at the spirit, you know, it's the Bible says that we were dead in trespasses and sins, right? And that we are made alive together in Christ. So our spirit, like when God told Adam, don't eat of the tree in the day you eat shall surely die. Well, he died, you know, spiritually, not physically. So I think that sinners are born dead in trespasses and sins. They have a spirit. It's just, it's dead. And I think believers, the reason I was trying to express this to Paul earlier, and he kind of clobbered me on it when we were having a discussion, but I think when, how does man accurately become an image bearer? Every man bears the image of God, but in Christ, you know, when God regenerates us, you know, body and soul, you know, obviously are alive, but then our spirit, when he causes this dead sinner to come to life and we receive Christ, you know, in those three parts, there was a couple of verses that I wrote down here that, that draw a distinction. In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, uh, soul, and body be preserved and blameless. Yeah, so that's that's the benediction you get, right? And then there's another one, obviously, that we use all the time. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit 
and joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So yes, like Pastor Paul was saying, there are times when these words are used interchangeably or synonymously almost, right? But then there are times when we see them used distinctly and that kind of goes back to, like even when we read in our Bibles, what I'm saying in our discussion, the word goyim, ethnos, we see Gentiles, you know, can mean he, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, heathen, can mean nations, it can mean Gentile or non-Jew, right? So the context, like Pastor Paul was saying, determines the meaning, not the way the word changes etymologically over time. We have to stick with how the Bible is using a word contextually and then prayerfully we'll arrive, you know, at the right position. And so there are some dangers in that. Some folks who would consider themselves trichotomists will do some wacky things in the, in, and say some things that aren't really defensible in Scripture about the division of soul and spirit. And it's worth mentioning that those are dangerous ideologies. When you think about a person maybe being saved in spirit, but their soul is not yet saved or vice versa, there are some folks who carry around a doctrine called the carnal Christian doctrine where somebody has given their life to Christ but they're not really living by the Spirit yet, so they're saved because they prayed a prayer, because they went forward and got baptized, but their life shows zero fruit of the Spirit. That's the wrong way of looking at a person as being saved. I think when somebody doesn't bear any fruit in the Spirit, then you've got to ask yourself, is this person really trusting in Christ or not? Because we don't have a category in the Scripture for somebody who is somehow spiritually saved and is getting heaven, but just gets to live like a heathen and give no glory to the Lord. That's a fallacy. And so you don't want to break things apart in such a way that you leave room for those kinds of wrong ways of looking at the body of Christ and people within the body of Christ. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that I have trichotomist ways of looking at the spirit and the soul. But functionally, I'm probably a lot more on the lines of a dichotomist in that the immaterial and the material, for the most part, are the way that we, we deal with people. And uh, so I, I think there are some fine distinctions between soul and spirit. Uh, but I'm not willing to, you know, to die on that battlefield. Uh, I think people are able to have some dis disagreements about that without breaking fellowship, without being at odds with one another. Mm -hmm. uh, Greg, did you have something? Yeah, for, yeah I guess so. Um, Talk loud for the recording. Got you. So the spirit, this was a question I had, the spirit being... Are we talking about the Holy Spirit? No. No. Somebody, or are we just talking no. about just the Spirit in general? Spirit man, of man. Spirit of man. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great the clarification. The yeah. Spirit of man. Okay. Right. Because a person who's not in Christ doesn't have the Holy Spirit. When we are in Christ, now the Holy Spirit comes upon us, but it is God's Holy Spirit, and it indwells us, but it's not a part of our nature. It is our helper and our companion. But so people can sometimes confuse that as well. So that's a great that's a great thing to mention and, and bring clarity. I appreciate you mentioning that, Greg. We're not talking about the presence of the spirit, the Holy Spirit, or not. We're talking about a man having a soul and a spirit. Often trichotomists will see a difference in that the soul is sort of like what animates the body and gives them life, uh, but the spirit connects them to the righteousness of God in some way. And so when when a man falls in, in, in Christ, then the, the spiritual aspect of them is there, but it's dead. It's broken. It's, it, it doesn't work anymore. Uh, and so it takes the Holy Spirit to bring that back to life. But obviously the body is still somewhat alive. I would, I would maybe fine-tune a little bit what my brother 
John said earlier in that, that the spirit dies in Adam, but the body and the soul don't. I think the body and the soul do, but they do it gradually over time. Not at the moment. Right? He's not at the moment. Yeah. You know, Adam doesn't go crunch, drop dead, right? He's still alive. There's still, there's still animation in him. And so that body would not be animated if it didn't have a soul of some yeah. kind. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm seeing differences between soul and spirit. But to be clear, the body, the soul, and the spirit died in Adam to some degree, yeah. just in different ways. Yeah, yeah. at and some then, point, right? Yeah, that's, after talking this for, we've been talking about this for two years, probably, roughly, yeah. close to that. Um, I really think that's where this discussion really comes to a head on, is what do, what do we mean by dead? What does the scripture mean by dead? When Paul says in Ephesians 2 that you were dead in your trespass and sins, I would take that to mean the whole man, physical and spiritually, but obviously, we're still walking around, we're dead men walking, I mean, I say it like that. But when we think about even the reality of what happens in eternity, um, those that are in hell will have a body there as well. Everyone gets a, an eternal body. And it will be proper, it's proper to say that, that person is still dead and they're still actively sinning for all eternity. That's why hell is forever is because you just don't stop sinning when you go to hell. You're still continuing in sin. And you'll have your body. So, so that person is still dead. But yet, we, we, the difficulty that we're thinking of this is because of how we understand someone to be unsaved and still alive. But in reality, Scripture calls that person dead still. That's, and that's hard to think about. So. It is, too. And I think when we think about like a lot of my interactions with people that I know in the world, they don't believe what we believe, right? So they're not going to use biblical terminology like no. soul yeah. and spirit. They're going to use what scientists use, metaphysics, where it's essentially what we're talking about. We're talking about physical and metaphysical. Now, with metaphysics, we're talking about the things that are abstract from us, like our mind, right? So if someone wins the lottery and they're, they've been lusting over a brand new car and a gigantic new house and they finally get the desires of their wicked heart, right? You know, metaphysically, their mind has conjured up something that they want, right? Just like when the Bible talks about this, about not to lust after things or women or men or whatever it is, right? So those are things that take place in the spirit world, right? So scientifically, people try to explain these things with terms that the best way they can because they're groping in the dark. But I love reading theologians that marry these terms together, say, well, when they say this, what they mean is this, but obviously they don't have the spirit of God. They are not regenerate. So... They're doing the best way they can to try to explain things. So essentially what we're talking about is physical and metaphysical, right? So. Yeah. Look at systematic theologies. Do you know yourself? Send us stuff. If you find stuff that's good, send it to us. That would be you know, interesting to read. Okay. Uh, moving along. Uh, how and when did the Sabbath requirement move from Saturday to Sunday? I love the interaction that happened in uh, Slack today, was it? Where uh, uh, the other day. yesterday, where somebody asked that question in Slack, and Paul was like oh, chomping yeah. at the bit to answer, but he's like, "But we know this is coming up in the Q and A, so let's hold it off till then." So, <laughs> so that, this hopefully isn't too controversial for us, at least. Um, it happened with the resurrection of Christ. So when we think of the Sabbath commandment, that's the fourth commandment um, that you shall set aside one day in. Out in, in out of the seven to worship the Lord, and so we see it. It's interesting because in the New Testament we don't have a formal verse that says, "Hey, now start doing this." Um, 
what we call it is the Christian Sabbath rather than the you know Jewish Sabbath. And the Christian Sabbath is the Lord's Day. And so we see for a few verses that just make it abundantly clear that this is the case. Acts 20, verse 7 says that you know, the Christians started meeting on the first day of, talks about them meeting on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, I think, where Paul says when you gather on the first day to take a collection, the first day, I mean, they're, they're gathering. And then also, John in Revelation says he was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Um, so what we see, and then you go to the early church documents, primary sources, the Didache, uh, Josephus in 150, um, Justin Martyr, Justin Mar- I mean, Ignatius, all of these people, the church has, start, they started meeting in light of Christ's resurrection on the day that he rose. Sometimes it's called the eighth day of the week. Um, other times, you know, it's just referred to as the first. So that's the reason. When did that happen? After the resurrection. And if, if you, you can even look back, there's, you know, catechism sermons on this as well, too. It's, if you, if you think of, why do we even have a week at all? There's nothing in creation that tells us a week is a period of time, except for the fact that, that God created everything in six days and then rested on the seventh. Mm-hmm. And so that's the point to, when it was at the end of the week, that's the point us to the looking to God for the rest that we need. And when it's on the first day of the week, that reminds us that we have that rest now. We're in Christ and we live out of that. So. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath in Matthew 12, right? So none greater than Jesus. And so when we think about these things, it's, it's pretty, like Paul was saying, it's pretty irrefutable that the early church met, you know, on, on the first day of the week. Like the passage he quoted in Acts, I think that's the one where he continued with the message until midnight, right? Mm-hmm. So when, and then the one in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, I think he said, um, there's an offering being collected. So what do the, when do we do those things, right? We do those things when we gather, we worship, right? So it's pretty obvious this is the way that the church was meeting and and gathering. And then later on, I was, I mean, Paul and I were discussing this. A lot of people struggle with this. We'll go and look at literature and say, well, oh, the Roman Catholic Church changed this. Okay, well, yeah, later they may have changed it. And there wasn't even a Romanist church then. It's a Catholic church. But those practices had already been in place historically. And we have irrefutable evidence on our side that that's the case. So when people try to you know, challenge us on this, they'll say things like, well, John was in the spirit of the Lord's day, but he was on Patmos. And, you know, it doesn't really, it's descriptive. It's not really prescriptive. We'll say, okay, fine. I'll conclude with them, but I'll say, but Acts 20 and 1 Corinthians 16 is prescriptive. We're seeing them doing something. We're following after that pattern, as well as our brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, throughout the first part of the church of church history. So we yeah. do believe it's the Lord's day and that's what we practice. You, you could make the case that Acts does talk about believers gathering daily even. Yeah. Right. And break get gathering daily and breaking yeah. bread and sharing all things. And there's obviously we as a church we'd want to encourage that as well too. That's so why we would maybe encourage, you know, midweek types of things. But there is a distinction that we see with the Lord's Day, a specific day called the Lord's Day, mm-hmm. where the church is gathering to partake of the means of grace. I think often there's a a wrong mentality about the Sabbath. I know that there are several examples of when when Christ was accused of breaking the Sabbath, and he declared very clearly that the Sabbath was made for man. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. This is the second question. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can do it, yeah. But this is the second question. So you can go ahead. Yeah, but like, okay, so the Sabbath was made for man. 
So this idea that the Sabbath has somehow been abolished, like it's somehow a relief to us that we don't have to feel compelled to come on that seventh day and to worship or that first day of the week and worship uh, like they used to in the Old Covenant, that's a wrong way of looking at it. The, the Sabbath is made for man. And so I was just talking with a sister the other day. I saw her before church. And I walked up to her and I put my arm around her and I could tell she was just heavy in the heart. And I asked her, are you okay? What's going on? And she said, you know what? There's just so many things happening in my life right now. I feel overwhelmed. I, I, don't, know how, I don't have answers to these problems that have presented themselves to me. And I just, I, I'm like, where is the Lord? I keep crying out to him and stuff. And I said, well, is there anything I can do for you right now? Can we pray about this? And she says, let's talk about it afterwards. Let's get together. So we worship together and we pray together. And the word was preached. And I go to her afterwards and I, and I walk up to my sister and she's like a different person. And I go and I say, are you, are you ready to talk? You want to go in my office? She says, Pastor, I don't need it. What I needed was the Lord's day. Amen. What I needed was to gather with my brothers and sisters and to be reminded of the grace of Christ that I have. And this has lifted my spirits. My burden feels light now. And just to hear that sister reminding me what a, what a joy it is for us to gather together as the people of Christ on the Lord's day. Why would we try to release ourselves from this thing that God has given to us as a gift? The Amen. Sabbath is for man. So to, to try to get into an argument where we say, well, how much do we have to do on the Sabbath? Or is this enough? Or do I have to go to evening service? Or do I have to do this? It's like we get the opportunity to do these things together. And if the, the Lord is really our foundation and our joy, then we should not be trying to say, how little can we get away with and still feel guilt-free? That's, that's the, the wrong way to look at the Sabbath entirely, brothers and sisters. It is... It is a happiness for us to come together, even when we don't totally agree on everything. Like as a church, these Q&As, we get together, we talk about the Lord, which he is our life and our love. Like he is the heart that, 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 that beats inside of us. So let's enjoy this and let's, let's look forward to it. Let's, let's revel in the time we get to spend together. Instead of like as soon as the last benediction is given, we jet out of here and get out of the house of God. No, stay with your brothers Amen. and sisters and pray and talk to each other and and just revel in this, this togetherness because this is for you. This is what God has given to minister to your soul and for him to be glorified. And, and so many people I know that were one time walking with the Lord began to look lightly upon the Lord's day and to go just when it was convenient or they took a job that gave them a financial boost but it kept them out of church half the time or most of the time or they, they started getting involved with extracurricular things that were good and beneficial to others, but they weren't church, and they let that displace church. And then they start to fade, and their, their passion for the Lord begins to be displaced by other things that are less godly. And, and then the, you know, before you know it, they're not walking with the Lord at all. And I'm not saying that if you skip church, you're going to go to hell or you're going to lose your salvation. I'm just simply saying that God has given us a normal means of grace to our benefit and to our blessing. And if we think we know better, we're, we're mistaken. He is the one that provides for us. So let us be nourished in the ways that he has called us to be nourished. By Amen. You know, that was... Oh. I would say that was the follow-up question. The follow-up question is, is, is Sunday school and an evening service required on, this, on for the Lord's Day? Yeah, I just want to say real quick that uh, I couldn't be more grateful for the answers that these brothers have given up here. I remember there was a time when... Uh, I was battling over this issue and I heard a message from Bodie Bauckham and um, I remember it just rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, man, he's really trying to bring this Sabbath down on me. But what it was is the Lord was crushing a lot of the dross. It was, you know, in, in me where I wanted to be in the Lord's house. I wanted to be among his people. But I think like Nick was saying, we got to be careful not to have all these little 
the little vices here and there that we want to just try to squeak through worship just to get to what we want. Because the Pharisees were doing the same type of a thing where they would put in all these man-made things that were just kind of trying to help them get around the weight of us worship being obligatory. Worship, we're commanded to worship God. And I love what Bodhi said. It's the one day where God commands you to be blessed. And when we think about that and we're resting in Christ and we're fellowshipping with the saints and we're hearing the word and we're being reminded of God's promises and we're falling down upon our face before him, there's nothing better than that because this is God. We're coming to greet and to meet and to partake of worshiping God, the king of the universe. And there's nothing better for our souls, all right? I've had a lot of people talk to me about, oh, man, we're going to miss football because of the, you know, uh, the new change in service. So what? <laughs> what has football ever done? That's what nights are for. No, but <laughs> seriously, I mean, I've, as a football fan, what has football ever done to pay for my sins, to answer my prayers, to, 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 to deal with my struggles? I say this wearing Niner geared out, right? <laughs> I, I, I love my team, but not like that. I mean, I love my God. And at the end of the day, God's people... We gather together. There's nothing more important than this. I mean, put on airplane mode. Put on recording. Old TiVo, or there's no TiVo anymore, but DVR. You know, it's not that hard. We can just, you know. We got to remember what's important, right? And it's like a lot of times people can take work or, you know, family or whatever and you know, I like what Pastor Paul said. Yeah, use church as an excuse to miss everything else, right? Because it's the most important thing that we do is we gather together when we greet each other and we encourage each other like the story that Nick just said. We need this. We need God. And we need to remember that we need God. Yeah. I'll say one really quick thing. I, when we think is is because this was the question on Slack too, is the evening service required? Is that part of it? and Sunday school for that matter as well. Um, why would we think that only the morning service is required, right? That's not, do we get that from God's word? It's the Lord's day. And so what we understand about the Lord's day is that we should make every effort to gather with the church when, um, when that opportunity avails itself. Some churches don't have a second service even, uh, or a Sunday school hour. There could be all these other reasons, but we have one. And we want to, the reason we have those things is because we want to be faithful to the fourth commandment, and as we understand that as a Christian Sabbath. And so we think, is it a requirement? Well, who, who's the one making the requirement? It's the Lord God who has said that this is what we're to do. But we understand that also, that as God is merciful to us, and sometimes there are works of mercy or necessity that might prevent you from doing that. And so if you know you have to leave because you have to take care of someone in the evening and you're not able to make it at that time, well, okay, you're not going to be, you know, church discipline, or, you know, I think you're going to have the hammer of God's wrath come down upon you because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ in the first place. But that's not a license to continue to sin. So we should make every effort to be with the church when the church is open. But if we can't, for works of mercy or necessity, take care of family members. I mean, we need nurses, we need doctors, we need policemen, we need firefighters. We need people to work at energy facilities so that we have lights and all these things and heat um, those, there are many different kinds of works of mercy and necessity that we would be sympathetic to. But as Christians, we should make every desire to let church be a reason to miss everything else. Mm -hmm. 
And when you look at the Puritans, even, they preached for hours and hours, and even multiple times a day, not just once. Yeah, we think of that even in you know, Acts 20, where hours, you know, the Apostle Paul and stuff, too. We gather together, and that's why part of the thing we're trying to do with, you know, the new schedule change is have that meal in between the services to be more conducive to that togetherness that the church should be marked by. And they did it without children's church, too. Amazing. We're trying to do that. Yeah, yeah. Have your kids with you. I think he had. You know, I just wanted to add, I mean, I, I agree with everything you guys are saying because, I mean, just a few weeks ago, you know, like, I mean, I have one of those jobs where I have to work one Sunday a month, right? Yeah. And then I was sick the, the Sunday before. So, I mean, missing two Sundays, man, I just felt like really disconnected from the body. I mean, we're just talking two, two Lord's Days, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think when, when we do trade the Lord's Day for those other things that are far more worthless, I mean, how, how connected do we feel to God's people? You know, it's funny. We were just talking about this in, uh, in, in the, in the uh, Sunday school with the kids. You know, it's like... Uh, you know, when they talk about the city of the living God, and it's like, you know, God with us. And it's like, well, we're talking about the church a lot of times, right? It's like, we have become that city, and God is with us. Now, I mean, obviously, he's with us always, but he's, I believe he's with us in a special way when we, when we gather together on the Lord's Day. Absolutely, yeah. Amen. All right, uh, last question. Uh, what is the Reformed theology view of, on Ezekiel's temple and sacrifices? And maybe you can quickly maybe give a short version of what that exactly is, for those who don't know. Uh, okay, so there's two really demanding views. If so he's, the question is, what's the Reformed view? So the contrast to that would be a dispensational, premillennial view, which would say that there's going to be in the future a temple that's going to be rebuilt in which Christ will reign and animal sacrifices will happen. Which is... They, they were described in several chapters near the end of Ezekiel, right? Yeah, yeah it's 40, chapter 40 to 48. It's super detailed where, uh, where Ezekiel is told to come and, and measure um, the temple. I think a spirit actually, an angel does it, all the measuring, but he watches. Measurements, and, materials, all sorts of directions. Very detailed. It's supposed to look like, yeah. Yes. So the Reformed view, it's not like everything. It's not monolithic, but the Reformed view, which we think of what's Reformed, is someone who is subscribes to a Reformed Confession, is Calvinistic and Covenantal, and that's usually going to speak to your view of eschatology, which is your study of end times. And so that lends itself to all-millennialism or post-millennialism, and which says that Christ is currently reigning. If we look, I just preached on Revelation 11 and the end of 10, and there's a lot of similarities between these two passages. Um, in Revelation 11, John is told to eat a scroll, the very same thing that Ezekiel is told to at the beginning of his prophecy. There's an allusion to, um, there's a phrase actually that's in the Septuagint in Ezekiel about the Valley of Dry Bones, about the breath of life coming into him with these two witnesses. And so in, in Revelation, John's told to measure this temple, the, the Gentile court not to measure, but the other one to, mention, to measure. And the point being in all of that is, I think it's talking about the same exact thing. Um, and the, the temple then is a, an apocalyptic way of expressing the church. The church is the temple, is what we see abundantly in the New Testament. Uh, we're spiritual stones being built up together. And so we're not looking forward a, a future temple to be built. That might happen, but that's not what Ezekiel is, is speaking of. Neither is it, what, is it what John is speaking of in 
the vision that he was given. Um, Christ is presently reigning right now, and he has been, uh, you know, since the ascension, and as the God-man. And this temple is the church, and it's speaking of the the knowledge that God's, that God has of his people. It's measured, it's protected, it's safe. We might go through tribulation and trial, but that's not to say that we'll ever be lost. We are protected, we are God's. That is the, if I, a quick view, that's the general reformed understanding of Ezekiel's temple. Not a future temple. And the big thing is too, sometimes our dispensationalist friends, they'll say, well, there's, it talks about there being sacrifices. Well, Hebrews 10 just utterly destroys that, right? Why would we go back to the shadow and the types? There are no more sacrifices that are going to be made. They'll say that it's done as, as a memorial, um, but they also have a weird dispensationalist tend to have a weird view of the Lord's Supper, which means memorial only, too. But uh, that's getting kind of farther out into weeds. Um, Hebrews 10 is very clear. I think it's 10, 25. There's no need for any other sacrifices. Christ is a once and for all sacrifice. Uh, what that's talking about is the, the actions of the church. What the, what the church is in this present evil age. And I would add too that, like Paul was saying, that the dispensational view really gets into the hype and hyper literalness of this. But yeah. you know, the the descendants of Israel, are the like the sand of the sea, right? Only the elect will be saved, right? So it goes into these, I think, really deep description because who can number, you know, the amount of the children of Israel, right? I'm talking about the true Israel, the elect, right? You know, we go all the way back through church history. There is myriads upon myriads, like just, you know, when we think of that, the Lord come with, uh, behold, the Lord come with 10,000 of his saints, right? There's there's so many people who've been saved going all the way back to creation, right? So I think it uses all these descriptive details. We're talking about the body of God going all the way back to the old covenant church, to the new covenant church. I mean, there's going to be, you know, a lot of people before the throne of God, you know, at the consummation of the kingdom. So um, I like what he said too, what Pastor Paul said about, you know, the, the temple, that's us, right? So typologically we see this in Ezekiel, but I just don't know why, like even with the sacrifice part, we do offer sacrifices today. This goes back to the whole metaphysical thing. Sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. We don't come in here and sacrifice a blue. Uh, we're you know, living bulls. sacrifices. Yeah, we're living right. sacrifices, right? I and urge so, your brothers in view of God's mercy, and yeah. to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Yeah, Romans right. twelve. Yeah. yeah, so it's if you if, clear. if you wanted uh, on our podcast, so either iTunes or Podbean, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ Part Thirty Eight is when I is when we get into that. If you want us to, it might be helpful to this conversation. But. Yeah. We should probably stop there, right, yeah. Jeff? I think so. Kill our mics. There's a football game on. So Thank you all for coming. Great discussions tonight. If you want to stick around and talk a little bit more, feel free to do so. But, um, Jeff, would you close us in a word of prayer? Thank the Lord for the evening. And we'll oh, it might be. It's Thank you for saying that. I think it's the apocalypse. It was two weeks ago, so part 37. 38 was the seventh trumpet, which is... That's another conversation. But part 37, if you want to listen to that talks about, I get into that, the, the correlation between Ezekiel's temple and the vision that John sees in Revelation 11, the beginning. All right, let's thank go ahead you. and pray. Holy Father, we thank you for this day. And uh, Father, we uh, thank you for uh, allowing us to come here, Lord, and to, to uh, 
to have a church body that has questions, Lord, and that wants to uh, know more about the mind of God and about Scripture, and to have elders that are willing to uh, to answer these questions to the best of their abilities, uh, Lord. And uh, we know, Father, that there are, are things that we just don't know, uh, Lord, that Scripture doesn't explain to us fully. And we know, Lord, that there are things that, uh, that you just don't want us to know yet, Father. And uh, we just pray that uh, through all of this, you would be glorified, Lord. And, uh, Lord, that you would just uh, build this body up, uh, Lord, uh, to, uh, uh, to be faithful stewards uh, of you and to, uh, to continue to seek your will and to seek your face. And, Lord, we uh, pray that you protect us as we go out through this week, Lord, and that that we would glorify you uh, through this week, Father. And uh, we just ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, you guys. I think it was enjoyable for us. Yeah, you know, so Amen. Try to do these more periodically.